electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Tyler Matheson. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, a conversation with McDonald's CEO, Chris Kempsinski. While the pandemic brought new challenges to franchisees across the globe, it also offered opportunities that McDonald's met by embracing its core menu. Chris joined us at CNBC's Evolve Global Summit on June 16, 2021, to walk us through McDonald's pandemic playbook, developing a strong company culture, speaking out on social issues, raising wages, and staying competitive in the marketplace. He spoke with my colleague and friend, Carl Quintanilla. Here's our conversation. I was thinking about you and the company and sort of corporate adaptation and evolution and innovation. And I was thinking back to the conversations we had in the very early days of the pandemic, where information was very scarce, there was very little context, it was highly emotional, and you were having to make um, a lot of very tough decisions very quickly. And I wonder, when you look back now in hindsight, when you think about that period, were you operating through some kind of planning matrix, or was it truly fly by the seat of your pants. How do you describe that period now? It was all of that. It was incredibly uh, confusing just to get your arms around everything that was happening. And it was changing in 120 countries where we operate in real time. And I think, you know, the, the reality is nobody was prepared to have to deal with a situation of this magnitude I think in my my case, one of the things I wanted to do at the beginning is I just laid out some principles. So as opposed to trying to anticipate every decision, to just provide the organization with a set of principles that would use that I wanted them to use for how to go about making decisions. So started with we're all in this together, and we needed to have that mentality that we're all we all need to help each other through this franchisees, suppliers, the company, et cetera. Second for me was we're going to lead by example, uh, which means we're not going to ask the crew to go to places that we wouldn't ourselves be willing to go to. We're not going to ask of others things that we aren't willing to do. Uh, We're going to be transparent. We're going to say what we do know, what we don't know. Uh, We are absolutely going to be making decisions for the long term. Uh, So let's not get caught up in in the short term uh, here and now. And we've got to stay true to our purpose. We have to be here uh, to feed and foster communities. And so I just, I laid out those principles uh, for the organization as a framework to then think about the decisions that they needed to make in real time in the markets. And I think that served us pretty well. Over time, as things started to evolve, we got a, a better handle around things. But in the beginning, it was just providing some broad brush parameters. And then, and then you're right. We did get to that period where it became very clear that quick service, especially was going to be hit with a wave of demand. Um, and I wonder, at what point did you realize that because of that, you were going to be able to be aggressive, even as lots of other companies in this country, at least, were having to hunker down, raise debt, uh, raise cash? 
certainly we came into this uh, pandemic in a very strong position. We had had several years of strong growth in the U.S. business. We had a, a very uh, strong position from a balance sheet standpoint. And so I, I think the biggest thing for us was to first get the franchisees to understand that they, we were going to be here to support them, that they were all going to get through this. And that's why back in April, one of the things that we did, we injected about a billion dollars of liquidity into our system to be able to get the franchisee mindset to orient away from worrying about, am I going to be able to pay you know, my mortgage or pay my uh, loan that's due this month? Uh, to get them out of worrying about that and to think about longer term, how do we position ourselves? And so once we had that sort of behind us, I think we did recognize that the pandemic offered us a number of opportunities. One was to simplify our menus. We had to do simplicity in our in our menus, both out of necessity, uh, because we just didn't have as many people able to work in the kitchen. But I also think there was an opportunity there where we saw the power of our core menu you know, one of the interesting things that happened is in the pandemic, people started going and, and wanting their, their familiar favorites. They were less interested in experimenting and much more interested in our core. And so getting regrounded in that from a business standpoint. And then we're, we're so fortunate in our business to have drive through in 95 percent of our restaurants and to see how that became such a go to service channel for customers as they were uh, dealing with the pandemic. I think those two things together, this all of a sudden, this mindset switched from being, you know, one of defensive to really being much more aggressive. Hmm. See, I think that's fascinating uh, because it was your competitive advantage, more drive-throughs than anybody else, um, better engineering, I'm sure you would argue, than anybody else, and you streamlined to your core and you focused in on delivery and digital. Um, Dine-in is not one of the Ds you talk about much. And I would never expect you to say that dine-in is dead, but long-term, is that a fade? I think dine-in is always going to be here. Eating is such a social experience and dine-in is a part of that social experience. So I think dine-in is, is here to say it varies also around the world. You know, in Europe, our dine-in business is the majority of the business. Here in the U.S., dine-in is about 25% of the business. So I think it also depends a little bit on the cultural context. In Europe, we are certainly planning on dining, dine-in becoming, again, the dominant form uh, of how a customer experiences McDonald's. I think in the U.S., we may see dine-in take longer to recover. I think the three Ds that you referenced, digital drive through and delivery, those are, are going to be elevated for a sustained period of time, not just in the U.S., but around the world. But we know and we're certainly expecting that dine-in is also going to be an important part of the McDonald's experience. You know, uh, some of us are old enough to remember when you sold more beef than chicken. I remember my first McNugget. I think I was 10 or 11 years old. And I wonder, as you think about changing diets over the long term, where you think uh, plant-based is going to end up? One of the um, marketing chiefs of Impossible Foods was on the radio the other day, and she said that five to 10 years from now, people will say, remember when we used to eat meat made from animals? How weird is that? Or how weird was that, I guess, is what her point is. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you think that's overselling it or if, if, if there's the germ of a possibility in there. You know, you never know. I, I love when I get asked these types of questions. Ray Kroc had a great quote. Uh, he said about a similar type of question in terms of what was McDonald's going to be selling in five or 10 years. He said, I don't know, but I, I do know we're going to be selling more of it than anybody else. 
And that's a little bit of my attitude when it comes to plant-based or chicken or beef, which is we follow the customer. So wherever the customer wants to go, we're going to evolve our menu to meet those needs. And if that means that plant-based becomes the dominant thing that people are eating in the future, then our menu is going to reflect that to the degree that plant-based doesn't have that sort of uh, uptake and you know it remains more of what you see today then our menu is going to reflect that but i think uh, i've said you know we do recognize that plant based is uh, a long term trend but i think what we've seen over in history as well is these things uh, tend to t- take quite a while to play out these are not things uh, in our experience that happen overnight so i think perhaps the impossible uh, uh cmo that you referenced maybe was uh a little optimistic about how quickly these uh, sorts of consumer trends happen. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Speaking of, of long-term shifts, wages, of course, it's been a remarkable year uh, on that front. There was the argument made the other day, and I know you've recently made some announcements about raising wages uh, by an average of 10% for tens of thousands of employees. Um, some argue that because $15 is sort of now a, a benchmark of sorts, not just at McDonald's, but at Amazon and Costco and Starbucks, that the so-called fight for 15 has been essentially won. Do you think that's true? I think what's happening is that you're seeing that uh, a, a great uh, economy is very helpful to growing uh, employee wages. And I think many of the changes that are happening from a wage standpoint are happening because of companies like McDonald's needing to compete for the best talent. So uh, I think, you know, what you're seeing here is is the benefit of, of that. You know, our move that you referenced around paying $15 an hour by 2024, which is the timeline that we laid out, uh, is because of our need to stay competitive. And and when you have Walmart and Amazon uh, Target that you referenced all moving to $15, certainly that's a talent pool that we're competing with. So, you know, we respond to uh, where the market uh, is moving. And I think there's also been, you know, topic about whether there needs to be uh you know, change in the federal minimum wage. We have uh, always said that, you know, we're happy to have that conversation. Ultimately, that's a policy question for lawmakers to make. But I think there's no doubt that 725 in this day and age uh, is not what you should be paying or need to be paying to be competitive in the marketplace, whether that's mandated through legislation or whether you just let, you know, kind of free market capitalism rule the day. Uh, wages are going up because the economy is strong. Yeah, uh, you know, speaking of of issues uh, that are either led through policy or uh, activist pressure, I'm thinking of all the things that CEOs are being asked to weigh in on um, in this modern era, whether it's voting rights or or wages or um, benchmarks on diversity and inclusion. 
Do you, does that ever make you uncomfortable? Do you think that you're being asked to address things that you really, you, you weren't hired to address? You were hired to run a business? I, I think, you know, part of it is to recognize that the role of corporations in society, I think, has evolved over the last, call it 20, 30 years. And it's evolved for a number of reasons. I think one is that, you know, other institutions like the federal government are less respected um, and less viewed as being problem solvers. And so one of the consequences of that is that corporations are being asked to stand in where in the past other institutions played a bigger role in this. I think second is you're seeing whether it's from employees or customers uh, that you know they are making decisions about where to work, uh, who to be uh, patronizing based on does that corporation reflect the values that uh, are important to me? And so I think both of those in combination uh, have required corporations to become a little bit more uh, clear about what they stand for. I think if you're a consumer company, even more so if you are a global consumer company, uh, even more so. And so I think for McDonald's, you know, what we've tried to think through is how and when do we speak out? And I was asked about this at our, our annual shareholders meeting. And what I said is, you know, quite simply, we, we are, when we think about it, we think about it first, is it directly impact our business? So is this something about either the corporation or the industry that we compete in? Or does it go to our set of values that we believe we have five values that are, are central to what we stand for at McDonald's that have endured over time? And if it's uh, an area that we think you know directly impacts our business or our values and where we think our voice can be helpful, we will speak out. It's why we spoke out on Black Lives Matter. It's why we've spoken out on climate change. Uh, it's why we spoke out on uh, what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. And it's why we've not spoken out uh, on a whole host of other uh, topics. And so I think, you know, what's going on today, it doesn't make me uncomfortable, but I think you just have to be very clear about where does your corporation uh, see a, a role to, to speak and, and when does it know uh, to stay quiet? And ultimately, you know, we are a non-political organization. We don't pick sides. Uh, we just have to stay true to who we are and uh, that'll work itself out from a, from a political standpoint through the uh, democratic process. You've got the added complexity of uh, a franchisee relationships or operator relationships, and you've either got to uh, coax or cajole or convince a lot of uh, independent small business owners, some of whom have been with you for generations, by the way, uh, to see things the way you see them. When we hear about turmoil, and it's been going on as long as McDonald's has been around between corporate and franchisees, what, pe what pe do people not usually understand when they see headlines about uh, franchisee uh, you know, uh, relations that are frayed. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is to recognize in the U.S. we have 2,000 franchisees. Globally, we have 4,000 franchisees, and our franchisees reflect the society that we live in. It actually goes back to how McDonald's was founded. McDonald's, the idea behind being a franchise business is we wanted a diverse set of franchisees that reflected the communities that they serve, that reflected society. And so just as society itself has, you know, had an even greater focus on lots of different points of view, lots of different uh, discussions and ways that those come about, uh, it's no surprise that that same dynamic plays out in our system as well. And so I think, you know, what I would say to anybody who's, who's you know, noticing that or, or reflecting on it is, you know, we have the same types of conversations, the same dynamic in our system 
that exists at society at large. I think what I get so gratified though about with our system is that we ultimately are able through that discussion to come together to find solutions and ultimately it makes us better. I think, you know, McDonald's is a great example of where diversity of thought actually leads to uh, a better business, leads to a better system. And I hope, you know, maybe others can learn from that. Uh, so from my vantage point, uh, that would be the big thing for people to recognize. Finally, Chris, I know uh, you're a graduate of Harvard Business School where uh, the case study method is quite famous. And I wonder, uh, in your tenure so far, has there been an episode where if you were writing a case study for the class of 2021 or 22 or 23 uh, at McDonald's, what would it be? Great question. Uh, I, I think, you know, to me, maybe what it would focus on is leadership and culture, because at HBS, there's a lot of discussion, certainly about, you know, the tax and accounting and uh, strategy. <laughs> but so much of what I've seen comes down to culture and strategy and, and or, or culture and, and communication. And what we've been through in the, in the last, call it 18 months or so, uh, has just highlighted for me how important uh, a strong company culture is and how critical it is for leaders to be able to communicate uh, and be out in front. That was Chris Kemsinski, CEO of McDonald's. He spoke to my colleague Carl Quintanilla at CNBC's Evolve Global Summit on June 16, 2021. The keynote is produced by the CNBC Events team. For more information on upcoming CNBC events and how you can join us, please visit cnbcevents.com. I'm Tyler Matheson. Thanks for listening. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.